Well, today we are in our last Sunday, our last bit of the series through the life of Moses. And it's hard to believe that we're there because really we're only two-thirds of the way through Moses' life. Um, There's many more things that happened and a lot of things that weren't recorded. Um, Because Moses, it only took a couple months for them to get to uh, where we're going to talk about today from leaving Egypt. They get there. God delivers the law. They get to the land of Canaan. The spies come back and they say, we'll never take it. And God says, fine, you're all going to die in the desert. And they spend the next 40 years wandering in the desert till everyone dies in the desert. And so not much is spoken of that time. But, uh, um, but today we're going to conclude this segment on Moses' life. And I think this is a really important one because it informs our faith today. And I'll, I'll get into more of what that looks like now. But uh, uh, last week we talked about how uh, the Amalekites had attacked and Moses, um, by raising his arms and, and Aaron and her standing next to him helping raise his arms, they overcame uh, the Amalekites and how we need people to lift our arms. And they're in this place where God delivered water to them when they were thirsty and, and, uh, and it was named after kind of contention and, and not trusting God. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. So it says this, picks right up where we, we left off. Jethro gave the advice to Moses. He says, you need to not do this on your own. You're, do, you're doing this all of your own strength. You're going to die. And so Moses brings help around him, and they're in the same place. And it says exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt. It's amazing how much has happened in two months' time, isn't it? Just in two months after they left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. So this brings us full circle. Um, we're back at Mount Sinai. Do you remember when we preached on Moses in the burning bush? Where did it happen? Mount Sinai. So, so Moses is right back where he had first been called, where God had first revealed his name and who he was to Moses and said, this is who I am. I am uh, Jehovah. Um, and he reveals who he is to Moses and, and calls him. And so now they've come full circle. They're back at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is a good-sized mountain. As a matter of fact, this is a picture of Mount Sinai. Um, it's, uh, this is where, just as typically consensus agreed on, that would be the historical location. And you can see it's a very rugged, inhospitable region. You can see why finding any kind of vegetation there would have been hard as a shepherd, right? So this, this mountain is quite tall. The, the peak of it is, is over 8,000 feet above sea level. But the prominence of it is about 2,000 feet. So to climb it is... is is pretty considerable. It's about twice the elevation gain as like climbing Mount Pisgah. It'd be like climbing it twice. And, uh, and you can see it's not exactly sheltered from the sun. You're like, I'm going to bask under this tree while I rest. You know, you're, you're exposed to the elements. It's, it's a grueling hike. And they say for someone that's in reasonable shape, it should take at least two hours very vertically. It's not a meandering hike. It's two hours of just vertical climbing. So it's a, a pretty substantial mountain. And as I studied this chapter, I learned things that I had... Never known. That's either because I just make assumptions or maybe it's because of the media and movies I've seen of it. But I've always kind of seen it as Moses gets there with them and they make camp. And Moses is like, I'll be right back, guys. And he goes up the mountain and God gives him the Ten Commandments. And Moses comes back down the mountain. He's like, here's the Ten Commandments. And that's the story. There's more to it. And in my study as I read chapter 19, chapter 19 of Exodus became one of the funniest chapters in the Bible I think I've ever read. Genuinely, I, I was like, this is hilarious. And uh, I, I, 
I, I think it gives us a picture of Moses' true humanity, that he was a person. And so here's why I thought it was so funny. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. It says that Moses climbs this mountain to appear before God. God calls him up there. So it says, then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. He appears before God. And then in verse 7, it says, God sends Moses back down the mountain to do everything that he commands. He says, Moses, um, go back down. And so Moses calls all the elders together and the people, and he told them everything that the Lord commanded him. He said, I've been up on the mountain. God told me to do this. And then in verse 8, the people say to Moses, okay, tell God that we are ready to do whatever he tells us. And Moses says, okay. And so he goes back up the mountain, and Moses relays this message to the Lord. He says, okay, the people say they're ready to do whatever you want. And then in verse 10, God tells Moses, okay, go down and tell the people to prepare for my arrival. And Moses says, okay. And so he goes back down the mountain. And so Moses tells all the people, uh, don't touch any part of the mountain. You will surely die, God says. So you need to just prepare yourselves, purify yourselves, get ready for this. And so he climbs back down, tells all the people this, and uh, delivers this information. And then uh, in verse 20, God calls Moses back to the top of the mountain. <laughs> and so uh, this is on the third day. So the Lord came down on top of Mount Sinai and calls Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses... I love this. So Moses climbed the mountain, it says. So he's back up on the mountain. It says in verse 21, God says, I'm not sure the people got the hint here. I want you to go back down and really tell them, don't touch the mountain. I'll kill him. I'll kill him. And, Mo- <laughs> and I love Moses' response. This is what Moses says in verse 23. But Lord Moses protested. The people can't come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. He's like, don't make me do this again. They got the hint. I've been up and down four times. Let's just call it good. And so I, I love it. Moses is exhausted. He protests. He's like, Lord, let's just, let's just call it good. So God says, okay, you don't have to tell him that. But I want you to go down and get Aaron for me. And so Moses has to go back down and get Aaron and bring him back up the mountain. So it just cracks me up as I read this chapter. I don't know. I see the humor in it. I see Moses going up and down, this poor old man, up and down this mountain over and over again. And uh, I think God was messing with him a little bit. I don't know. So then God gives the people the commandments for living in covenant community with God. God delivers this this covenant with his people, and we commonly call these the Ten Commandments. It's God's top ten list. And uh, we, for some reason, we people love top ten lists, right? We've got top ten lists you can find online of like the top ten basketball players of all time. And then the debate of, you know, who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James or whoever. Um, Then there's... there's, uh, there's songs, the top 10 songs of all time. I actually Googled what are the best top 10 lists of all times. And I actually got top 10 lists of the best top 10 lists. And I was like, whoa, this is meta. This is getting crazy. I'm like, it w- so anyway, I, I don't know if the top 10 lists of the top 10 lists made the top 10 lists of top 10 lists. But, uh, but some of those top 10 lists I did find were worst Halloween candies. And I think we all have one that immediately jumped to mind. These are some of the ones that were listed. Toot- Tootsie Rolls. Ooh. It got spicy in here. Okay. Wax Coke bottles. Okay. The Necco wafers. Oh. <laughs> that was visceral. Double bubble gum. They should call that half bubble gum. That does not last at all. Candy corn, I think, was number one. I have a submission, those, those little cinnamon discs that are like in the red wrappers. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think those should be given out at all. But uh, 
Another top 10 list I found was the top 10 most British phrases. And I have to admit, I hadn't heard of most of them. One of them I hadn't heard of was number six. And that phrase was, by God, sir, I've lost my leg. That was uttered by Lord Exbridge when a cannonball had taken off his leg during the Battle of Waterloo. Number five famous most Brit- top ten most famous British phrase was, By God, sir, you have, declared by Duke of Wellington in response to Duke or Lord Elridge, Exbridge. Which, uh, that just made me laugh. I was like, oh, yeah. But God gives this top ten, and this wasn't by committee, this wasn't by vote or anything. This was God's command. This was the top ten commandments that he gave uh, the, the Israelites in that, in that day. So um, it, it, it's these. We, we are probably very familiar with them. The first one was this. You must have, uh, not have any other God but me. Second command. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in heaven or on the earth or in the sea. Three, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Four, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Five, honor your father and mother. Gavin, you in this room? Just preaching right now. No, I'm kidding. He's a good boy. Six, you must not murder. Seven, you must not commit adultery. Eight, you must not steal. Nine, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor. And ten, you must not covet. So he gives these... Laws, and he, he, he breaks them down even further there, but that's a, that's a summary. And when the Lord finishes speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gives him these two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. It says it was written by the very finger of God. So God gives these commands to the, to the people, and Moses takes these commandments with him, and he hasn't even stepped off the foot of the mountain when he looks up, and the Israelites are breaking the first two commandments right there. He can't even bring them down and fully deliver them before people are already breaking the commandments. They've, they've made this golden calf and they're worshiping it. And they've made a graven image before God. And, and, and he's going, are you kidding me? So he dashes these on the ground. He's like, oh, I got to go back up, don't I? And so he breaks them on the ground. And he has to go and get the, the, these tablets again. But it just shows that it doesn't, doesn't take long for us to break God's law. It does not take long for us to break God's law. And this would begin actually a rich history of the Israelites rebelling and breaking God's rules. And so these, these Ten Commandments that were given actually weren't even the full law. These were just ten rules out of actually 613 of them. 613 rules listed out in exhaustive detail through the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And, uh, and, and these sections um, that a lot of well-intentioned Bible readers, when you're doing your Bible reading plan, we get bogged down in, and then we start to lose hope. You're like, oh man, if I learned one more thing about how to boil a goat or something like that, I'm going to lose my mind. Um, but uh, this is where a lot of, we get a lot of people discouraged and we ask ourselves when we're reading this, what does it all mean? What, how does this apply to me? And, and as a Christian, what do I obey? Do, what do I take? Do, are there some of the rules that I listen to or all of the rules that I should listen to or none of the rules that I should listen to? Just the top ten? What, how do we engage with this law? What does it mean to us? Do not kill. I think most of us would be like, I'll follow that one. Most of us follow that one. That's a good one. But what about, there's a law that says you're not supposed to wear clothes made of more than one type of fabric. There's a, a law that says you're not supposed to cook an animal in its mother's milk. By, by definition, that would literally mean you can't eat a cheeseburger. So, so uh, there's these these rules that we kind of go, where, where's the line? How do we understand? Well, I'm going to get kind of practical here first. Um, the Israelites were a people that had no heritage whatsoever. This was a people that had no history. They had no tradition. From the day that they were just a group of 12 brothers and their families, they had been slaves. There was no rich history they had. They were slaves. 
If anything, they had borrowed heritage from the Egyptians. And so when they were brought into this new land, God was literally designing an entire society from the ground up. God was telling them, this is what your traditions are going to be. These are the feasts you're going to have. These are the things you're going to remember. This is how you're going to be identified as a people. And so he says, as a distinct people, this is how you are going to relate with one another in in these chapters. He says, this is how you're going to relate with the land. This is how you're going to relate with foreigners. Here's how you're going to hold your ceremonies. Here's how you're going to honor God. And so he lays out a covenant with his people, which is law and practice, how they were to live their lives as his distinct and holy nation. So that's what these, this, this is all about. So there's a distinction that is made now between the law God gave. There is what's called the moral law and there's the ceremonial law. So the moral law, which is called the mish, mishpatim, relates to justice and judgment. Often it's translated as the ordinances. So this, this encompasses regulations on things like justice, respect, sexual conduct, It includes the Ten Commandments. This is the moral law. But then the ceremonial law, which is called the Hukim, is literally translated as the custom of the nation. And that relates to the proper worship of God and their sacrifices and their ceremonies regarding uncleanliness, feasts and festivals. And it was regulations that were meant to distinguish the Israelites from their pagan neighbors. This is how you stand different in your dietary uh, rules, in your clothing restrictions, in your tattoos, in the hair length you have, in your head coverings, in circumcision. All these things were ways in which the Israelites were seen um, as, as ceremonially different from the rest of the world around them. And then some add a third category, which is called judicial or civil law, which is kind of the administration of the moral law. And it gets really into the weeds. It talks about like how you give restitution to a man who's gored by an ox. Or uh, if you have like a donkey that gets trapped in a neighbor's pit, you know, digging it out and all these different uh, actual how they're played out. But uh, but but the two main categories are the moral law and the ceremonial law. And as New Testament non-Jewish believers, we have never been held to the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws were given as a distinction for the Jewish people. So as New Testament believers, this was the argument that was going on. There was a group of people called Judaizers that said, Oh, you, you guys um, uh, have accepted Christ, that's great. But you have to do this. You have to get circumcised. You have to do all these other things that the Jewish people do. And this is what's talked about in Colossians when Paul says, Don't let anyone judge you in regards to the food or drink that you have or, or the festivals that you hold uh, for the new moon or Sabbath. He says, These are a shadow of things that are yet to come. So he says, these ceremonial laws are not holding you. But, so that, we just got done with kind of the, the, the more practical application of how we understand the laws that are given. But, these 613 laws that were given were not just all given at once. It's not like God was like, and here we go. And just gives all these laws. But it was given through story and time. What would happen was, God would give laws, the people would hear the laws, and then they'd rebel. And then God would go, no, bad, no, more laws. And the people would go, oh, more laws. And they'd rebel. And this system would go over and over again where the people would turn against God. God would lay out more laws. There would be rebellion. And so at the end of Moses' life, he looks back to these people in the book of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy, and he says, I know you aren't going to follow these laws. He literally says that. He's like, this is, this is, he lays it out for them. If you follow the Lord, things are going to be great. But I know you're not going to. He says, I know you're not going to follow these laws. You've proved it over and over. And and he basically tells the people, your hearts are hard and you need God to give you new transformed hearts. 
And so we fast forward then in this story from Moses, 1,400 years, to a man named Jesus. And over those 1,400 years, the Jewish people have been living with varying levels of success, mostly failure, on following these laws. And, uh, and, and at times they've been taken into captivity, into Babylon and Assyria. And, uh, and so there's been this 1,400 year history of people trying to follow the laws, but ultimately failing. And in Matthew 5, Jesus is giving a dissertation on the law. And that includes the Ten Commandments. He's giving teaching on what, what, how we interpret these laws that we're given, including the Ten Commandments. And here's what Jesus says. In verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I'm going to turn there myself here. Jesus says, you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. That's, that's commandment number six, right? He says, if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But then he says this, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are su- subject to judgment. He says, if you're even angry with someone, it's the same as murdering them. And then Jesus goes on in verse 27. He says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. Some of us could say, hopefully many of us, I've never murdered, I've never committed adultery. However, Jesus says, that's the starting point. That is the bare minimum that God laid out. But here's the truth. If you do even one of these things, you have been guilty of breaking the entire law. You are subject to the same judgment as though you had broken every law. What a, what, a, what a heavy thought. He says, well, you, you thought you were do, doing a good job just by, by not killing people? You thought you were doing a great job by not sleeping around? You, you're like patting yourself on the back, but you even, if you even think a hateful thought about someone or entertain lust in your heart, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. How can any of us do this? How can, how can any person do this? And the truth is, none of us can. Not one of us can. Have you ever told a single lie, even the whitest of lies? How many of us have ever taken anything that's not yours? I have a whole bunch of Jerry's home improvement pens in my truck. I can tell you. I put them in my ear. I forget. It's not on purpose. Have you ever wished that something someone else had was yours? The Bible says by breaking just one of these things, we've broken the whole law. If we tell one lie, we're not just someone that told a lie. We are a liar. And God knew that we couldn't do it. So if God knew we couldn't do it, why did he make the law? If God knew this is something they could never accomplish, they could never pull it off, and even if they they literally didn't murder anyone and literally didn't do these things, even have these feelings in their heart, they'll fail. Why would God do that? Why would he set us up to fail? Why would God set us up to fail? Well, here's what it says in Galatians chapter 3, 19. Much of the epistles is based on talking about what the law and how we understand it as believers. He says says this in Galatians 3, 19. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. The law was given to reveal our sin. The law was given to reveal our wretchedness so that we know what is right and wrong. We are, let me tell you something, we are held into account for sin whether we know it's sin or not. I like the idea of blissful ignorance. But if I get pulled over going 65... And the officer says, did you know you're in a school zone and the speed limit's 25? And I could say, I didn't see the sign. And he'd go, oh, you didn't see the sign. Have a great day. Be more careful next time. I'm still held into account for the law. 
Whether we are aware of the law or not, we are still subject to the sin. And so what the law did was that it revealed to us just how broken and in need of forgiveness we are and how incapable of, of doing these things we are. And so the law was given to reveal to us our sin and the depth of our depravity. And the penalty for breaking the law, the Bible is clear, is one thing, and that's death. That's the, the Bible says in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. I hate that as a paycheck. That's not a good wage. I don't want to go work for get just death. Um, but the Bible says what we have earned with our acts, with the things we've done in our life, is death. And so this death is what we've earned through breaking the law. And this, the law reveals to us our sin. And, and this is the exact thing that we are not capable of doing, of, of earning it through obeying the law. But when Jesus came, a new covenant was created. When Jesus came, there was... Something that was prophesied by a prophet named Jeremiah 400 years before Jesus came. He was looking back. He was looking back a thousand years at Moses. And then he was looking forward to the promise that God was going to have. And he said, he said this. He said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant will not be like the old one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. He said, they broke that covenant, and though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord, but this is the new covenant I will make with people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jeremiah is looking to the future. He knows their past. He knows the story of Moses. And he says, there's going to be a new covenant that's brought about by a promise. And it's going to write God's instructions upon their heart. No longer in a book. No longer in the things that they follow in phylacteries and things like that. But rather, it's going to be written on their very hearts. And it says, God is going to become their God and their people. They will be his people. And so Jesus becomes this new covenant that was prophesied about. And the old law that existed shows us how fallen and broken and corrupt we are and without hope, without this new covenant in Jesus. In Colossians 2.13, it says that we were dead because of our sins and because of our sinful nature was not yet cut away. So we were dead because of our sins. This old sinful nature was not yet cut away, but it says this, then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins and he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. That is the good news. This charge is put against us. You broke the law. You are guilty. Has been nailed to the cross. And we are saved under his grace. We're no longer then under the requirements of the law. And this is where the rub is. Because I like the rules and I like to know I'm following them. This is is where it gets a little bit... Hmm. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5... I have not come to abolish the law. He says, not a single pen stroke will disappear until heaven and earth pass away. The law still exists. Why does the law still exist? To show us our sin. To reveal to us that we're broken. So he says, I haven't come to take away the thing that shows you how sinful you are and how how much you are in need of salvation. He says, I have not come to do that, but I have come to complete it. He says, the law still exists to show you your sin, but those who put their faith in me are going to come under a new covenant with God. And it's a covenant not based on following rule after rule after rule after rule and making sure you check off every box, but it's a a covenant based on love, not fear. It's a covenant that's based on love rather than fear. We are married now to Christ. We are not married to the law. 
And this image of marriage and relationship is what Jeremiah was talking about. Did you catch that when he talked in, Je- in the book of Jeremiah we just read? This, I, this, this imagery of marriage. I want you to think about if you were just in love with someone, you're like, let's get married. And you work up some sort of a prenup where you write out every single task that you are held to. I will vacuum the living room every Tuesday. And I will dust and I will do this, and I will make sure the, get, the, the car has a fresh oil change. And you list out everything, and everything you're supposed to do. And then your relationship is based on getting every one of those checklists done. How many of you would start to buck back a little bit as you're held against that? Oh, you forgot to do that. You're failing our contract. You are failing our contract. We have a contract that's written up. But rather, when we talk about this marriage-love relationship, I say, in light of the relationship I have with my wife, I am, I am going to, not out of compulsion or fear, but out of the love that I have for her, serve her, serve her in the best way that I can, with every portion of my being, with everything I have. When I, I, I'm not thinking about, could I do something that's technically not breaking the rules? In a relationship, that's not a healthy place to be, right? I honor her by, by serving her in every way possible. So if you, if you were looking at a marriage relationship by saying, okay, so I've got this marriage relationship, but let's talk about, you know, what can we do with the rules and what can't we do with the rules? You are not in a healthy marriage relationship. And this is the exact kind of relationship we're talking about with the Lord. It's a love-based relationship, an honor relationship. But it's saying, Lord, as I serve you with, with, with all that I have, with my whole heart, it's not about the, the contract, but it's under relationship. And so I've learned, the longer I've been married to my wife, the better I've learned ways of doing things to honor her. The better I've learned to do things that, that honor her and, and serve her. And in our salvation, this process is called sanctification. So in the Bible, there's, there's a moment, it tells us, that when we ask Christ into our heart, we say, I can't obey the law enough to earn it. And we're forgiven. The Bible says there's a moment of sanctification where we're made right with God. Some, some say, um, the, the, uh, uh, justification, I'm sorry, justification. And some say it's just as if I never sinned, right? We are made justified before God. I, I got this. Now I'm going to really confuse people. I got those two words mixed up. Justification is being made right before God in that moment. God says, you are right before me, you are righteous before me. But then the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, of honoring him through things that are in the law, we know God's heart because it's in the law, but we start to become uh, better at seeing these things through, played out in our relationship with God, is the process of sanctification. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, and when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we have this moment of justification. And as we live under grace, dead to the law, we engage in the process of becoming more and more like Christ. More and more like Jesus. And so, this is what it talks about in Romans 7, as we conclude today. Romans 7 says, So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. If those that are going to play instruments would join me here. It says this in verse 4. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now, you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. And as a result... We can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. In the new way of living in the Spirit. 
Do you want to have that freedom? Do you ever feel just constant guilt of, am I making God happy or not? Am I, am I failing him? Am I, am I I'm breaking the rules and God's just really mad and he wants to squish me because I keep messing up? It says, when we live by the Spirit, there's a new relationship, that, a new reality we come under. We're now serving God, not in trying to obey the letter of the law, but in a new way of living by the Spirit. Do you want to have that freedom? Have you been living as a slave to your sin? Have you been living as a slave to your sin? You might say, oh, no, there's no sin that holds me down. I, you know, I, I can choose to stop whenever I want. If you've sinned one time, you are a slave to that sin. Its penalty is held over you. We have no way of earning our way out of it. And I think a lot of us try to play blissfully naive when we say, I could stop this sin whenever I want, but it really is the one that has us in its grip. And do you want to be set free today? Say, Jesus, I need to be set free. I need salvation. I can't, I can't do this on my own. I can't try to be a good enough person to break this habit. I need the one who, the only one who can set me free to set me free. If we could bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment in this room before we close. If you're in this room and you have been trying to earn your salvation by being the best rule follower there ever was. Let me tell you, people have tried that through millennia. And you'll only leave yourself empty. The only way to right relationship is through the new covenant, this new relationship that's been set up by God through Jesus and Jesus alone. The Bible says that there is, Jesus tells tells uh, uh, the, the Sadducees is there's, there's only one way to the Father and that's through the Son and that's through Jesus and so right now if that's you and you say I've been trying to earn some sort of relationship with God and right now I need to surrender my life to Jesus and say Jesus it's only through you that I can know that I stand right before God and I want to have that relationship no longer being the A, B, C, D rule follower but saying Jesus I want a relationship with you and if that's you with their heads bowed and their eyes closed I want you to raise your hand and raise it high. I want to pray with you. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Anyone else? Thank you, Jesus. Right now in this room, I want us all to say this prayer out loud together. And it's a prayer that says, Jesus, I declare you as my personal Lord and Savior. So right now, repeat after me. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. Where I have lived in sin, you came and lived a perfect life. Where my sin has brought death, you have brought life. And today I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins, Jesus. Wash me. Cleanse me. Make me whole. God, I want to know you in a personal relationship, not as a set of rules, not as a religion, but as my Lord and Savior. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I also want to just speak to those that in this room have been living under the weight of the law. Let me tell you, the process of sanctification is something that we need to take seriously 
in relationship, we don't take it lightly. We don't just toss it to the side, but we say, I am committing myself to honoring um, and, and, and pursuing God to be, be, be being made holy more and more like Jesus every day. So it's nothing we take lightly, but you've been living under condemnation. You've been living under condemnation of sin that you have uh, repented for and moved forward from. You've been living under condemnation because you feel like you're never good enough. Let me tell you that there's freedom in Jesus' name. That there's freedom in Jesus' name. He has paid the price, that we have had our sin washed and completely uh, eliminated. The Bible says that he has thrown it into the sea of his deepest forgetfulness, that our sin has been thrown as far as the east is from the west. And I'm not a flat earther. I believe that that never touches, that those points never come to a point where they're in in contact with each other, that that God says that that our sin will will never exist again in his mind or his remembrance when we bring it to him. And the enemy wants to constantly remind you, remember when you failed him, remember when you sinned, remember how you messed up but right now that there's freedom in Jesus name so as we bow our heads one last time if you've been living under condemnation of the law if the law has been holding you uh, captive even though you've been set free by Jesus right now I want to pray with you for freedom and liberty that has been offered to you as a follower of Jesus as one who said Jesus is my Lord and Savior and I serve him So if you're in this room and you've been living under the weight of condemnation and yet you're a follower of Jesus, I want to pray with you. Raise your hand and raise it high. I want to pray over you right now. Lord, I pray for those that have been feeling just the weight of condemnation. Perhaps it's past sin. Perhaps it's moments where we just feel like uh, we're never good enough for you, God. But we know that it's, it's under the light and the reality of who Jesus is that we have this freedom. And so I pray for the joy of salvation to be restored again. I pray that the joy of salvation would be renewed in these hearts. That as people have said, uh, the law and the weight and the things that the enemy would want to remind me that I've broken would be completely washed away and the reality of who I am and how I stand before God would take prominence in my heart. Lord, remind us of how deeply loved we are and what you've done for us on Calvary. And that one day we will see you face to face as you are. And Jesus... Remind us of your love for us that has no end. That you have come to create relationship and you sustain relationship with us. That you know us and you love us. And we thank you for it, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. New Life Church, have a blessed week this week. We are so glad you're with us. Remember that in a couple weeks, in about four weeks, we're going to be starting our Wednesday nights. It's going to be a powerful time. Make sure you make it a priority. Block it out on your schedules, all right? God bless you, New Life Church.